Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. And today, I'm excited to have Chandan Lothar, who's a co-founder of Coin Tracker, a digital product that provides cryptocurrency tax and portfolio assistance. across thousands of cryptocurrencies and hundreds of exchanges and wallets before that he was a product manager at alphabet on project loon android and google search chandan has studied at harvard university in chemistry and physics and he's a y combinator alum welcome to the show chandan thank you so much rohit also so you know um, how did you get uh, involved in the cryptocurrency space and what got you interested to be in the crazy world of startups So uh my my story actually goes back to my days at Google. Uh like you mentioned I was a product manager there and in 2014 I actually worked on a small integration in between Google and Coinbase which is now the biggest US cryptocurrency exchange but at the time was kind of a, a smaller startup and by virtue of working on this integration they kind of gifted me a super small amount of bitcoin. which i mostly ignored uh for a few years but i kind of got more interested in it in 2017 a couple years later and i was quite shocked to see how much it had grown in value in just 3 years so i had already kind of had a growing interest in fintech generally and then seeing how crazy the crypto space was growing got me more interested in kind of as a hobbyist technologist learning a little bit more opening some cryptocurrency exchange accounts messing around with bitcoin and monero and ether and just seeing what it was all about but what really changed my mind and got me really turned from a skeptic into an enthusiast was trying to build a fintech app myself and it was kind of the pain and the suffering of trying to go through ach bank transfers and using the swift network to move money from one of my own bank accounts to another one of my own bank accounts and just how slow and inefficient and just how expensive it was to do that kind of made me think okay there's got to be a better financial rails for for moving money around and that that was sort of the starting point all right and you know what could you start with coin tracker and you know what makes it unique from from other uh, you know startups Sure so coin tracker essentially like you said is a cryptocurrency portfolio assistant and tax compliance software so it allows users who have cryptocurrency to track all of their assets in one place and get portfolio insights performance metrics and tax forms around those the thing that got us started on this was my co-founder John and I both were hobbyist cryptocurrency investors we had some coins here and there we had some exchange accounts then we had some hardware wallets we had some software wallets on our phone on our computer and it quickly became this tangled mess of transactions where you had a spreadsheet and you have wallets everywhere and you don't remember which addresses are where it's just it's very hard to keep track of so initially we just started this as a hobbyist project to serve ourselves and just keep track of our own transactions and then it kind of quickly took off from there when other people basically had the same pain point uh, in terms of what separates it from other uh, startups uh, i mean there's plenty of great startups out there um i think what the angle that we took from the early days was being very user focused so trying to make the user experience very simple and that was kind of what separated us in the early days from some of the other competitors in terms of just making it dead easy for anyone to connect their cryptocurrency exchanges and wallets. Got it. And uh and you know 
Uh, sometimes the tax filing for uh, for cryptocurrencies can be can be complex, especially uh, if you have uh, investments across different uh, uh, crypto exchanges. But uh, what are the rules for tax filing in in US and UK or even in uh, South Asian countries like like India? Uh, is it to be taxed like a, like a long term asset? So uh, this is a complicated question, which we could write a PhD dissertation on, but the sort of short summary answer um, for informational purposes only, uh, not as tax advice, is that, for example, in the US, cryptocurrency is treated as property, according to the Internal Revenue Service, which is our you know, governing body here for the, for the tax authorities. And it, uh, sort of like a very oversimplification is you can think about it kind of like a stock where you pay capital gains tax based on the realized gain or loss at the end of each tax year. So if you buy an asset and then it goes up in value and then you sell it, and then you would pay capital gains tax on the difference. And there's lots of complexities, lots of nuance, lots of special cases, um, but that's kind of the, the short summary. And it's all those complexities that make this a particularly challenging problem. Um, and that's exactly what we're trying to solve. All right. And um, are you only solving uh, uh, this problem for U.S. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the Western countries or you, you across different geographies? Currently, Cointracker supports U.S., U.K., Canada and Australia for cryptocurrency taxes. Uh, we do plan on hopefully increasing the geographic scope of that in the future. Um, and there's the only reason we haven't is purely just resource constraint. We would love to serve everyone. Um, it's just that there's different tax rules in each jurisdiction. So we want to make sure we do a, a really high quality job when we join to a new country. Got it. And are, are there any penalties for crypto tax avoidance? Uh, definitely. I mean, tax evasion is definitely a crime. Um, and we've already seen some high profile cases, even in the US already. So for example, there's a case uh, against John McAfee, there's an, there was another case, high profile case against a Microsoft engineer um, who got nine years in prison. So um, all, all I can say is the IRS is definitely paying attention in the, in the UK, the HMRC is definitely paying attention. These government um, sort of tax authorities already have websites about virtual currencies and taxation in each jurisdiction. Australian government has their own, the Canadian government has their own. They're definitely paying attention. They sent out tens of thousands of warning letters um, in the US. They've sent out warning letters in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, the ATO sent out 350,000 warning letters to people about crypto taxes. Um, so they're, they're definitely paying attention. And it's something that I would expect there to be a lot more compliance around in the future as people are making huge amounts of money in this space. Right. You, know, you know, as you mentioned, people are making huge amounts of money, and especially in 2020, where uh, you know the uh, the, uh, the price of the Bitcoin had really gone up. Uh, the should some people start with with crypto tax because a lot of accountants don't have much understanding about how do how do you tax cryptocurrency. So, any any, any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean, yes, the, the best place to start is Cointracker, uh, Cointracker.io, and we'll basically make it really easy for you. Um, we have lots of educational materials on our blog. If you want to kind of read what the rules are, Cointracker.io forward slash blog. Um, we also have a tool that makes it super simple. There's a free version if you just want to try it out. Uh, and again, our goal is just to make crypto tax compliance super easy because we want to help increase adoption of cryptocurrency in the space and remove the headache and the anxiety around all the tax filing. So that's exactly what we specialize in. 
Right. And uh, you know, what are some of the uh, you know uh, minimal differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum? Uh, I understand you know Bitcoin is is looked as an alternative to, to gold at times, and even uh, you know since it's, uh, there are only 20, 21 million bitcoins. Uh, but what, what do you think are other some of the main differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum? So uh, you know, from a ten thousand foot view, they're both cryptocurrencies. Uh, okay. They both have blockchains. They're both digital assets. Um, if we're going to kind of like zoom into the, the actual differences day to day, it's kind of along the lines of what you suggested. A lot of people's narrative around Bitcoin, at least today, is that it's a digital store of value, kind of like a digital gold. And if you trace it back to the original vision of Satoshi Nakamoto, the original pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, then theoretically, at some point, it could evolve into a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. So not just a store of value, but actually a medium of exchange that people use globally in a digital form that's totally independent from any government authority or central bank or anything like that, kind of like the people's money. Ethereum um, and the currency on the Ethereum blockchain Ether are are somewhat similar. Um, The sort of nuanced differences are a lot of the activity on Ether has been around building decentralized applications and what some people call Web 3.0, which is decentralized uh, applications that have no, there's no sort of central company or central authority um, governing them. They're autonomous and decentralized. So you can think of, for example, instead of having Amazon Web Services running a centralized database for all of your storage, instead having a decentralized IPFS style uh, file system that incentivizes anyone and everyone in the world to store other people's files in an encrypted format through uh, a file coin, which is a ERC-20 token, meaning a Ethereum-based monetary token. So they're basically trying to take these centralized marketplaces or centralized applications and find peer-to-peer decentralized ways of implementing them. That's kind of one of the, mo- the more popular and um, sort of exciting narratives around where Ether is going. Ultimately, though, they're both digital currencies on decentralized blockchains. Some people will would argue that Bitcoin is more decentralized and a little bit slower and a little bit more focused on this store of value and kind of like uh, sort of financial use case. And others, others would argue that Ether kind of follows a little bit more the like sort of tech use case of building this Web 3.0. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot, lot of people feel that, you know, Bitcoin is, is the only cryptocurrency to buy, especially if you're just starting off. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts on other altcoins? And uh, uh, do you think, uh, you know, 90, 99% of all these altcoins will, will consolidate and vanish away? Um, so this is not financial advice. This is like my personal opinion. Um, I'm not a financial advisor, but yes, I do think that most cryptocurrencies are uh, like will die. Um, it, it's trivial to create a cryptocurrency. I can create a cryptocurrency in five minutes uh, on my computer. And the result of that sort of very low barrier to creating cryptocurrencies means that thousands of them, literally tens of thousands of them have proliferated and most of them have no use case, no value. Um, there's no point into them. There's no network. There's not a lot of usage. And so there's no good reason why they will last for the long term. In terms of Bitcoin and Ether, like if you're totally new to the space and you're just kind of curious and you just want to get your feet wet and see what it's all about, Bitcoin is definitely the place to start. It's the biggest coin, has the most usage, has the biggest market cap, It's the, has the most tooling around it. Um, certainly the place to start. Um, for many people, 
that is also the place to end. And there's no need to go any further. And Bitcoin is the only thing that's relevant here. Um, others would argue there's you know, other things to look at. Personally, I'm mostly long on Bitcoin. Um, Ether, I think there potentially could be some interesting use cases with some of these decentralized applications, but they're yet to prove themselves. And um, I don't have the same amount of conviction as I do on Bitcoin, which I'm like sort of increasingly, it becomes more and more clear to me that it is like going to be a digital gold. Um, so that's my personal view. Um, and then I'm very skeptical on other coins like that are the longer tail of random altcoins that I haven't seen any value for, uh, at least not yet in, in most cases. Um, open to be proven wrong. Maybe someone has good arguments for why they should exist, but I haven't seen them yet. Interesting. And, um, you know, uh, do you think uh, Bitcoin operates regardless of government laws? You know, what if the U.S. bans the Bitcoin? Uh, do you think it will go to some other location? What, what will be the legal challenges if, you know, uh, U.S. bans uh, to ban Bitcoin? It's an interesting question um, that has a lot of layers of complexity. Like, what does that actually mean? So, like, in the, for example, in the past, the U.S. has banned individuals from owning gold, right? Like they, they created a rule. They said, you know, everyone has to bring their gold in and get legal tender and like U S dollars are going to be gold backed. That did happen. Um, so I guess like theoretically the government could try to do that again. I just don't think it would be feasible technologically because, um, it's not a physical asset, right? So like people don't know if you have people, may, if you're doing a good job, keeping your privacy up to date, people may not know that you're custodying Bitcoin and for sure it's going to move offshore. Like whenever there is more intense regular regulatory scrutiny in this space from one government jurisdiction, you see crazy amounts of regulatory arbitrage going on. And a point in case is case in point of that is Binance, the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, moving their headquarters, God knows how many times. And they go to the jurisdiction that's the friendliest to them. We also see a lot of innovation happening outside the US in places like Singapore um, and in Israel and like lots of other places. Uh, and that's certainly part of that is due to unclear and onerous regulations in certain jurisdictions. For example, like the bit license in New York, I've heard has gotten a lot of criticism and led to people moving to other jurisdictions outside of New York. For example, um, I've seen a lot of uptick in the Wyoming cryptocurrency space because they have really friendly laws there. And now they're starting to get uh, crypto companies with banking charters. Um, so it seems like things are moving in the opposite direction of the premise of the question, but I mean, you never know. Um, there's going to be a monumental shift in value from like gold and other traditional sort of financial schemes to new evolving financial um, infrastructure and platforms. And when tens of trillions of dollars and people's dynasties and power are moving at that scale, there's definitely going to be interesting things happening in the regulatory space. I'm not, by the way, allergic to regulatory action. I think it's good for industries to be regulated and for people to be operating in sort of like a safe uh, market where there are clear rules and fraud is like actively um, prosecuted, I think that's good. Like we don't want people running around, stealing people's money, causing scams. Um, but at the same time, it needs to be regulation that makes sense and lets the market innovate. So that's kind of why we're excited about the crypto tax space in that we aren't anarchists that think the government is bad and that, uh, you know, techno libertarians who, you know, want there to be no taxes. Like there's a reason why there's taxes. Government provides valuable services and we want to like make sure that that continues in, in this sort of new crypto world. At the same time, we want to make sure that the rules are sensible and that they're easy for people to follow, assuming they're good actors and they want to. So that's that's kind of where we're, we're excited about. Mailman is the email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer.
and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Interesting that you know you talked about about, about this particular risk, but uh, but do you think uh, uh, there'll be a centralized custody of you know Bitcoin on on, on exchanges, uh, like you know finance moving uh, the headquarters? But do you think there'll be a, 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 you know centralized custody? There certainly is a lot of that. Um... For example, like some of the main exchanges, Binance, Coinbase, et cetera, I'm sure they're amassing large amounts of custody. I heard recently Coinbase crossed $90 billion in assets custodied um, on their website. So yes, there certainly will be that. And I think what's important here is that Bitcoin allows people the option of self-custodying their assets, um, which you actually theoretically also have with cash. You can put your cash in a bank account or you can bring it home. And that's awesome, right? You can It's your cash. You can do what you want with it. The problem is it's hard to self-custody large amounts of cash and there's problems if it gets stolen or destroyed or whatever. Um, the, the benefit of Bitcoin on these things is it's not that you have to self-custody all your assets, although that does make sense in a lot of cases. It's that you have the option of doing that. And you don't really have the option of self-custodying a bank vault of gold, right? Like, you need to build a fortress and hire guards and like it's heavy and it's hard to move and it's hard to determine the authenticity and you can't easily send it to someone across the world. The value here is that at any time, if I want to move my funds off that centralized exchange, I can easily do so. And that's what gives it a lot of power. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I want to understand how to, how did CoinTracker look at onboarding, you know, thousands of crypto exchanges uh, since you got a, uh, you, you, you got a team based in, uh, based in the U.S. And how, how are you making products secure? Because uh, there are always, you know, privacy issues. Are you are you creating better privacy tools to uh, to make sure that, you know, CoinTracker is safe? Okay, so lots to answer there. So in terms, so we, we support thousands of blockchains, hundreds of, hundreds of different cryptocurrency exchanges and wallets, and like how do we deal with privacy and security? So in terms of scaling, it's super critical that we support lots of integrations because if you're going to help people with like, for example, capital gains calculations and tax calculations and things like that, you have to support all of the services they're using. And if you're missing some, there's going to be a gap in their in their reporting. So that causes a problem and makes the service not super usable for those people. So it's been a top priority of ours from the early days to kind of go down the list of what are the most popular exchanges, what are the most popular wallets, what are the most popular currencies, and kind of support them one by one. And it's been a very deliberate effort to kind of get coverage there. Um, in terms of privacy and security, that's ultra critical with any service, any tech service these days, but especially in the crypto space where people are super sensitive about security and the transactions are not reversible and there's no customer support person to call for Bitcoin to say, I want my money back. And so again, it's taking a lot of care and time with those things in terms of security best practices, having a bug bounty program, doing third-party security penetration testing, going through vendor onboarding security audits. So for example, we've partnered with Coinbase, we've partnered with Intuit TurboTax, um, we've partnered with lots of other of these exchanges and wallets and kind of going through their security reviews. Um, there's a ton of effort that's gone into trying to ensure we're doing everything we can to keep customer information safe. And then at the end of the day, the biggest thing is we never custody user assets. We never ask for people's private keys. And so even if CoinTracker is compromised, there's no way for an attacker to get user funds from CoinTracker. We're just doing 
the read access information reporting for users based on their transaction history. So that's there's just a ton of things we do to try to maximize users' privacy and security. In addition to, we never ask for people's names. We never ask for their social security numbers or government IDs. We never ask for their um, you know, address. So uh, people who want to be anonymous can easily do so on CoinTracker just by registering with any random throwaway email and, um, and using the service that way. And a lot of people do. Quite interesting. And, um, it, you know, uh, there's uh, a, a lot of interest among listeners about, about ICO. So, you know, if you can explain what is, what is ICO and can ICOs be used to finance companies in the future? They, and, and, and do you think it's going to disrupt the, the VC industry in future? Okay, so ICOs is an acronym for initial coin offering. And the idea is a organization or a group or a company can create a cryptocurrency and basically sell it to people who want to invest in that currency. Uh, there is in the US, for example, a lot of controversy over this, at least there used to be in 2017, 2018, when people were essentially using this to bypass securities laws. And essentially, instead of selling stocks in their company, they would just create these digital assets and then sell it to, uh, in many cases, unsuspecting <laughs> individual retail investors and then not offer them any value. Um, so that's why securities laws exist to help sure there's lots of information disclosure and, and things like that for uh, investors. Um, so what do I think about them? Um, I think 99% of ICOs are like either outright frauds or scams or just like bad investments that are going to go nowhere. Um, so I would recommend someone new to the space to avoid them. Um, now, could there ever be a use case for them where they're valuable or, or interesting or useful? I mean, I think even Ether, um, so Ethereum had a, sort of an ICO of some sort um, back in, um, right. you know, back, back about five years ago. So uh, yes, again, theoretically, like it's just a tool. And if you can use, find a good use case for the tool, like if there was a, a real legitimate reason why some kind of decentralized ne network needed to bootstrap that way and it was autonomous, like, yes, theoretically, that could be quite interesting. It's just that more often than not, it gets co-opted as a way to basically get lots of money quickly from like unsophisticated retail investors. And that's really unfortunate. So I think it has a bad name. It hasn't really worked super well. I don't think it's going to disrupt VCs in the short run. Um, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be a useful tool in a future scenario where people are using them to, for example, bootstrap a decentralized marketplace or network. Um, it just hasn't really panned out that way so far. Right. And, and, and what do you think would be the regulatory stance for Bitcoin and ICOs to thrive? Uh, so for Bitcoin, it, it is, I would say, already thriving. Basically, in the US, for example, the CFTC has said it's it's uh, a commodity. It's not a security. And so securities laws do not apply to Bitcoin in the United States. And that decision has actually led to Bitcoin continuing to thrive in a variety of ways. For example, it's much easier for a cryptocurrency exchange to list it because it doesn't have to go through the same sort of compliance processes it would have to if it were a security. Um, in terms of other ICOs, I think what is likely to make them thrive is less so about regulatory compliance, although that would matter in the short term, and more so a compelling use case. <laughs> like if there was actually a product market fit for a useful reason why an ICO needed to exist where, okay, this is the best way of financing this project. And it gives the early community 
skin in the game and gets them to be evangelists of this project and there isn't another better way of doing it, that would, I think, be the key reason why that would really take off as opposed to a specific government regulation. Well, um, I, I got a, a question from a listener, uh, Innocent, uh, who runs a cloud kitchen uh, company in UK, says that, you know, tech companies are becoming financial institutions and payment networks. Uh, do you think finance industry disruption will be uh, driven by tech companies eroding the power of banks and forcing them to change? Uh, basically, you know, traditional banks have been slow to adopt change and, and a lot of tech companies like WeChat, Facebook, Apple and Square becoming financial giants. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? I totally think that's true. I think like Mark Andreessen said, it's software is eating the world. We've seen that with every major industry with retail, like in commerce, like Amazon, it's just like eating a flip cart. Uh, like, you know, these companies are totally changing the way people shop with Uber and Ola and Didi, like totally changing the way ta taxis work. Like Airbnb is like worth way more than like all the biggest hotel chains. Uh, there's no reason why this isn't going to happen to the financial world as well. It's taken longer because they're, you know, you can't mess up with people's money and it's taken longer because the regulatory and compliance space is more complicated and slower to evolve. But I mean, challenger banks are becoming huge companies like Monzo and Revolut and Chime. I mean, those they're growing like crazy. Um, even for on the B2B side, we use uh, Mercury, this bank account. It's so pleasant to use. It's so easy. And going back to the old bank that we used to use originally, Silicon Valley Bank, is a nightmare. It's like I I feel sick thinking about the user experience that we had to go through there. And so it's like at the end of the day, the users are going to go to the best products that are the easiest to use. And those are going to be coming from startups that are taking user-focused technology perspectives. Um, that that doesn't mean every financial company is going to die. Like there's lots of expertise that a lot of these financial institutions have built over decades. Um, and the people who are smart to evolve and keep up with these trends may still survive. But if people think that finance is going to continue working the way it's worked before, they're going to be in for a huge surprise. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x? They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Interesting. And um, do you think, you know, uh, euro is going to be ex uh, extinct and US digital dollar is going to come in, in the future? Uh, so this is about like uh, central bank currencies and, and digital, digital stable coins and things like that, right? Okay. So um, there is a lot of talk about this. I know every central bank is thinking about this or like has opinions about this and it's starting to come up more and more. And the reason why it's coming up is because the existing financial system is so fragmented and slow and legacy. It's like, uh, for, I'll give you a really concrete example. If I want to send $200 to an ethical hacker who discloses a bug on Cointracker's website, but lives in India or Pakistan or Australia or Singapore or wherever, it is a nightmare to send them $200. It Absolutely. is, it's such a basic thing. I just want to send this guy $200. He did something nice for me. Like, I have to get his name and his address and his phone number and his bank, like routing number, wire number. Like then I have to get the intermediary banks. I don't know how long it's going to take. There's going to be foreign currency, like uh, fees. There's going to be intermediary bank fees. I don't know when he's going to get it. Like, it's just the pro the amount of time I would pay $200 to just get rid of that process. Um, it's so crazy versus if I just get 
$200 of a stable coin like USDC or $200 of Bitcoin, I can send it to this person in five minutes and it's totally hassle-free. So uh, the, the friction and the lack of having like an easy to use global payment system is what is driving, I think, a lot of people to think more about this area. Um, how it's going to play out exactly, I don't know. I think the thing that excites me the most is still Bitcoin because that kind of um, disentangles the really, really tempting uh, sort of short-term thinking that a lot of central banks have around when it comes to policy decisions and creating more debt that goes on to future generations to solve uh, sort of urgent problems now. Um, so that's kind of the thing that excites me the most, but I do think people are going to think more about central bank, like stable coin type of digital currencies. And uh, I don't know what technology is going to win out. It may be that there might be more innovation like SEPA and stuff. And I know is a big thing in Europe. Um, there may be more kinds of innovations that have nothing to do with cryptocurrency, but just in terms of evolving the payment system, but clearly the global payment system is going to improve. Like it makes no sense that I can send a WhatsApp message to anyone anywhere in the world for free instantly. And yet it's super crazy complicated to send them a few digital dollars. So that makes no sense. Right. And, and, and you know, uh, which tech company do you think can, can really, you know, disrupt this, uh, the financial payments, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, they're all trying to, trying to disrupt it. Who do you think can be the big winner? Um, I mean, I guess that's a, that's a trillion dollar question right there. If I knew I'd probably be a venture capitalist. Um, there are, I mean, certainly there's lots of people who have crazy distribution today, right? So like Facebook is a good example of that. Google is a good example of that. Apple is a good example of that. Um, but I think that the like people who are really going to win on this are going to be a next generation of companies who aren't kind of um, hamstringed by innovators dilemma of their existing products. So uh, Facebook, for example, has like big initiatives in this space with things like uh, Libra. I think they rebranded to something else. Uh, do, you, do you know the new name? I'm, I'm it's escaping uh, sure. me right now. It re, it's rebranded too many times. I, I can't remember the, the latest name, but they have the Libra project. They have like trying to put payments in, in WhatsApp and in Facebook messenger. Um, but ultimately I think, I personally think that there's going to be some kind of new player that comes out and figures out how to do this really, really well. And it might not even be in the form that we're, we're kind of used to thinking of, which is uh, like a, you know, us based Delaware C corporation, rather it might be more like a, a decentralized protocol type of approach, something like a Bitcoin um, or something built upon open protocols or something else entirely. Um, so like, for example, Bitcoin already has like, quite a bit of global adoption. It's still hard to use. It's still not mainstream. It still has lots of problems, taxes, compliance, all these other things. But I think if people figure out how to build it up upon it, that could actually end up being something that kind of takes everyone by surprise, kind of like the way the internet did, right? TCP IP, it's not run by any one company. It's just an open protocol. And then people found ways to make it user-friendly with browsers and Netscape and Mozilla and Chrome and all this stuff. Um, I could see something like that really taking effect because money has such a strong network effect. Um, and it's, we've seen it play out with the internet, right? Everyone uses the internet. Every, like it's, it's ubiquitous. That could really happen with uh, open money protocols too, I think. Got it. And I, I think Libra is not called Deem, but I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's just different over the internet. Uh, and that, you, know, uh, you know, it's not a financial advice, but how much, uh, you know, would you advise young people to hold Bitcoin? Because uh, I, I do think it's, it's, it's a great uh, asset to have, but 
Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? How much of the net worth should, should young people, you know, below the age of 20 or 25 should work? Okay. People ask me this all the time. Um, I, again, not a financial advisor. This is highly personalized to people's financial situations. For example, like if you have debt or loans or things like that, those are higher priority things. You should pay those things off first. Um, there's lots of good advice on personal finance on Reddit, for example, but let's assume you have disposable income. You have some savings, you have a safety net, you have six months of savings in your bank. You're not worried about like financial obligations for like health or loans or whatever. And you're just trying to figure out how to build your investment portfolio. I would say it's not unreasonable to me to have 1% of your allocation in Bitcoin. Um, it's kind of a hedge against the whole financial system kind of exploding or being able to have a store of value that doesn't correlate strongly with um, other types of asset classes. And I think it's totally reasonable kind of thing for a young person to kind of play around with and test out and see how they like it. And if it's something that you think you get really excited about, you believe the fundamentals, you read the research, you think like sound money is the future, then you, you can always double down on it and increase it. And if you think, hey, this is too complicated, I'm not into it, you know, you can always sell it. It's very liquid. Um, but I think it's totally reasonable to, to, for like someone new who's messing around to aim for something like that. Uh, I will say one thing that a lot of new people don't know in this space is that's like one Bitcoin as of right now is around what, 30,000 US dollars, something like that. You don't have to spend $30,000 to get Bitcoin. You can buy $5 of Bitcoin. It's divisible to 10 to the minus eight displays. So like, if you're just kind of curious, just put in $5, right? And test it out, see how you like it, see how it goes, see what you know, what you think. And you can always dollar cost average and, and build up a portfolio over time. You don't need to you know, sell your house and put in $30,000 to, to get your feet wet. Interesting. And you know, uh, since you're talking about the pricing, uh, price of Bitcoin, it's, it's 3,000 per, uh, but uh, you know, what do you think it's gonna be in the next 10 years? Uh, people are saying it's gonna be a million dollars, but uh, just wanted to, uh, Understand what are your thoughts on that? Uh, again, I'm not good at these predictions, especially in the short term. I don't know that I think there'll be big rises and big falls. It's not for the faint of heart. But my personal sort of belief is that there's a lot of room for this to grow. I think there's an order of magnitude more growth, and I'm I'm like holding for the long run. So I, I have, I'm like thinking 50 years out, like pass this on to the you know to the next generation, and yeah, I could see this growing 10x more. Nice, got it. And uh, Chandan, if you want to do the top three, what's your favorite business book? Uh, so I actually don't read that many business books. I was just thinking about this. Um, but the one that comes to mind that uh, I did enjoy reading was called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, um, where he just kind of talks through some real life sort of scenarios that uh, like entrepreneurs can face. Uh, and I, I just thought it was kind of entertaining. I like his style of writing. Yeah. Uh, it's a favorite book among the, uh, most of the speakers, guys who come on the board. Uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started working on Coin Tracker, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Hmm. I th- I th- so the things that have been the most valuable have been talking to users and just really trying to understand what they want and then just like giving them that and iterating. So I think this is like cannot be overstated is in the early days, just talking to users, real users of your product or potential product. Um, you can never do too much of that, I think. Uh, absolutely. And uh, are you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Hmm. Uh, those ones are really well known and I like, certainly enjoy using all of them. I'll give you an example of one that's kind of maybe not super well known, kind of a random tool. It's a desktop 
widget for, uh, like, for example, for a Mac or PC, it's called Jump Cut. And it allows you to basically supercharge copy and paste. So instead of copying and pasting the like most recent thing to your clipboard, it, you can copy and paste the last 40 things. And uh, if, if you just get like kind of crazy multitasking, I found it to be invaluable. Oh, that's very interesting. Ruby has talked about jump cut. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about CoinTrack? Yeah, I think the best way is probably on Twitter. Um, you can reach me personally at CGLodha, L-O-D-H-A. And you can reach CoinTracker at CoinTracker on Twitter. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll again put that in the show notes. Uh, John, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. You bet. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope other folks enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.